I can't help every time I look at that to think that should be up on a post office wall. <laughs> Wanted, you know? Oh. Our topic today, our topic, America is a Christian nation. You know, that's an interesting statement. I think it begs a lot of questions. Questions like, is it supposed to be? Does it really matter? What does it mean? And so, as we look at this topic today, we need to go into some of the history behind the idea of America being a Christian nation. We need to look at the implications of what that would mean, and we need to especially look at what the scriptures say about any nation that would make that claim and about what it means to be both a citizen of this country that has been made so great by our God and also then to remember that we are citizens first and foremost of the greater kingdom, the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. So if you put the next slide up, let's look at some questions. What does it mean to say that America is a Christian nation? Was it founded on biblical principles? Well, it was in some ways. You know, we have a lot of different discussion that's out there today as to what that really means. Was it founded on the principles of the Bible? It was for its moral law, the Ten Commandments, those universal truths that were believed in all societies, those things that came from Western society, that these are the things that govern a good society, that hold it together. That's why God, in the first place, gave those laws to, to his people, to his nation, that this is how we are to live. Those things that Paul says are written now upon the hearts. Those things that the Gentiles do on their own not having a law show that this moral law is something that is important. The majority of its citizens, are they Christians? Well, most of the surveys we know say that most people in our nation are Christians. That's a majority. Does that mean that America is a Christian nation then? Does that mean that it is supposed to promote Christianity since that is the majority rule? And then the idea behind that of saying this nation has a purpose, this nation has a duty, this nation has a goal then as a Christian nation to make sure that we make all other nations Christian. That's a lot of the stuff that goes into this thought. And I think it's important that we look at where this idea comes from, some of the history behind this, how that comes to be in part of our credo, and what it really means. So if you'd go on to the next slide, let's look upon this. Once upon a time, and it really is that kind of a story, America's conception, the great experiment America is often called because it was conceived, as Lincoln said, in liberty. It was an effort of man creating a new nation different from all those that had come before from the European experience. Key in our foundation is the idea of Puritanism, the religion of Puritanism, the Massachusetts Bay Colony. How many of you remember that from studying history? A Puritan colony. Now, the Massachusetts Bay Colony, as they formed early in the 1600s, took with them that the Bible was both not only the source of governance for the church, but it was also then the source of governance for the civil realm. And that idea persisted even up until 1776. 75% of the citizens in 1776 had the influence still in their minds of the Puritan experiment, that the Bible could rule both realms of the kingdoms and that it could be that thing. Well, 
it didn't work out for the Massachusetts Bay Colony. It fell apart. It was an idea that really didn't work in application, and we know a lot of the problems from history. But then also, as the centuries and the years moved on, we had the Great Awakening of the 1700s. I quoted a couple weeks ago Jonathan Edwards, who was a big mover and shaker in this Great Awakening. And the idea there became that America had become a God-chosen nation, like Israel had become. That it was America's duty, and that bound up in America's duty was the idea of liberty together with evangelical moving of people to, to make them Christians. Those two got locked together in this, and so the idea became that as we evangelized, we had to also create liberty wherever we went, that this was part of our goal. America was the city on the hill. It was something, the new Zion. It was the place that was going to change the world, to make it as God had intended it. And then finally, European history. What do I mean by European history? Well, those who came to America knew well the problems of what had taken place in Western civilization from the time of Constantine on, of what happened when the church took over the state, the horrors of it, the Inquisition, the things that caused so many wars the Holy Roman Emperor, all those things were the history of Europe that as they came to America, they wanted to avoid. They didn't want those same things to be repeated here. So this great experiment of America was to be different than that, was to do something that hadn't been done before. And so they came up with this idea of free exercise of religion, the First Amendment, the thing of separation of church and state. Now, Madison and Jefferson drew from an Englishman who many of you have heard of. His name was John Locke, if you'd go to the next slide. John Locke's proponent of how things should be was that there were two realms. There was the realm of the church, and that the church's interest was in spiritual things, but also moral action, and that the civil realm then was human interest and also moral action, and that the two overlapped in that center section of moral action. And so they believed that there was never going to be a conflicting interest between the two, that they both were interested in the results of their citizens in terms of how we lived and how we acted, and the law, again, those Ten Commandments that affected both of us in those realms. So the idea of the Establishment Clause was that it would promote harmony among people, that it would allow religion to flourish, and that the truth of Scripture would win out the day because it would show that this was the better way to live. Now that's kind of a brief history. I can't go into it in a whole lot of detail for the time that we have, but those are some of the ideas that have influenced America over the years. And to be true, those influences still exist today. The idea that America should be this Christian nation, should be this nation that both mixes in the scriptural ideas of being evangelizing and making people Christians along with being a nation, the new place where people would come. 
But America hasn't been set up that way. We know that. That the idea is that all religions carry the same weight, that all religions can find a place here, that there is freedom to practice, to live in whatever religion comes. And we've seen over the centuries those who have come to America to find that freedom, freedom to practice and freedom to exercise this. Now, what does the Bible have to say about all of this, of the kingdoms? Well, you heard the scriptures this morning, the scripture of Israel, wanting to be like other nations, wanting to have a king, and the implications of what that would mean for them, of God saying, they are rejecting me, that there was once a nation that was ruled by God, and it was Israel chosen. And then of Jesus saying that his kingdom is not of this world. And so we're going to look at something that the Bible lays out, part of Lutheran theology on the next slide. It's called the two kingdoms. I don't know if you've heard of this before. The Bible puts forth that there are two kingdoms that we have that God rules over both. His kingdom of power and his kingdom of grace. His kingdom of grace is what we celebrate here in the church and in the church universal. The kingdom of power is how God acts in the world. Often this is called divine providence, God's care of the world and what he expects in the world. And as we look at these two separate things, they are separate. They are supposed to be separate. There is how God acts in the universe and the laws of nature and the things that go on in this world that we are subject to. But there is also then how God works with his people, with his redeemed, with those who have been called in the name of Christ. God's care of creation. He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, the scriptures say. So God cares for all things by his kingdom of power, and we are included as he cares for that. But in the kingdom of grace, God's specific care is you and me as the redeemed of God in Christ that he cares for our needs, that he works in our lives to work all things together for good, as the scriptures say, for those who love God. In his kingdom of power, there is natural law and reason. That's how that is governed out there. Natural law, again, being, as Paul said, those things written on the hearts of men, that we shouldn't kill, that we shouldn't steal, that we shouldn't do those things that hurt or harm our nature. And reason is the pinnacle of deciding those things. But in the kingdom of grace, we know that we are ruled by something else. We are ruled by the word and by faith. And that we look to God and what he has told us in his word, what he has revealed to us in Jesus Christ to guide us, to teach us, to give us hope and a future. Those two different realms. In the kingdom of power, the governmental rule that scripture tells us that God makes leaders to rise and to fall. Remember, God said that he raised up even someone like Pharaoh for a purpose, to show his glory, to show that he was more powerful than the nation of Egypt. God uses people in the world to bring about things. He really intends for government to bring about true justice and to enforce laws but we know that there is evil in the world and we know that men are evil and that things go awry and that there are governments that are oppressive and tyrannical and in his kingdom of grace in here he rules us 
by his Holy Spirit. And he rules first and foremost our hearts by the Holy Spirit working through that word to convict us, to change us, to create that relationship that we have from our baptism that binds us together with our true king, Jesus Christ. And then finally, in the kingdom of power is civil justice. And that simply means that as we follow the law, as we do the things that are out there for the government, it bears its own reward. If I don't break the law, then I don't come up against the punishment of the law. The scripture tells us that governments bear the sword, that they have been entrusted with that, to enact punishment when things don't go the way that have been ordered in God's kingdom of power. But for us, in the kingdom of grace, he offers us what? The forgiveness of sins because of Jesus Christ, our Savior. A whole different thing, a whole different realm. Those two kingdom perspectives that exist in our world. Why am I saying this? Why is this important? Because it's important for us to realize both of our citizenships. That we as people of Christ, we who have been baptized, live in the kingdom of grace. Exist in this place, in this church, and work through those gifts that God has given to his church alone but we also exist in the other realm in the kingdom of power and we are subject as Paul says to the authorities that God has put above us and that we should pray for those who lead us we should remember them we should honor them because both are under the rule of God now what happens when the church begins to come out of this realm and tries to influence the realm of the kingdom of power and we've seen that maybe over the last 50 years, the church becoming more and more political, being involved in social issues, being involved in areas that I don't know that the church should speak on. I mean, what did we see in the history of Europe as the church began to be in places that it didn't belong? We saw the whole conflict when it was Copernicus against Aristotle and Galileo and the church made its decision on what science should be. Did the church have any right to speak on those things, to decide those things? Did the scriptures speak to those things? No, and we have to be careful as a people of God not to extend past what scripture speaks to us, but also how we speak in the world, in the kingdom of power. There's an interesting quote I found as I looked at this from a man who we know has worked in government, has worked in prisons, has worked in many areas to bring about change. Chuck, the late Chuck Colson. And I want to read this. It's a little small to get it all on the screen. But this is what Chuck Colson says about a political church. Because it tempts one to water down the truth of the gospel, ideological alignment, whether on the left or the right accelerates the church's secularization. When the church aligns itself politically, it gives priority to the compromises and temporal successes of the political world rather than its Christian confession of eternal truth. You know, God's church, you and me in this place, have to keep in mind first and foremost what our place is and why we are here. We are here first and foremost to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world, the saving salvation that God has brought about through the death and resurrection of his son, the hope that is in this world because of that. We are to bring that message first to all situations. Now, how then do we speak is the next slide I'd like to look at. And this is important to think about as we think of America, a is America uh, this Christian nation? 
Because a Christian nation has those implications that Chuck Colson just made. If we are going to be a nation that is Christian, if we are going to speak in the political realm, we are going to lose a voice then in the spiritual realm. How should we speak in different situations? And so you see some of these contrasts here. Here in this place, we speak of spiritual righteousness, of what we have been given by Jesus Christ. We know that we are sinners, that we are broken in our nature, that we fail and we do not do the things that God has asked us to do, as Paul says. But we know also that in this kingdom of grace, that God has bestowed on us perfect holiness and righteousness because of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We understand that in this realm. But we can't speak of those things in the political realm, in the kingdom of power, because it deals in civil righteousness. It doesn't understand the things that we talk about of the forgiveness of sins. It can't contrast the two because it deals, remember, in reason and natural law, not in grace and understanding. So as we speak on issues out in the world, we have to be careful of how we speak about those things, that we cannot overlap what we do here into that. We can try to influence, but we cannot speak to the things in the world in the kingdom of power as we would things in the church. Here we have a focus on grace and forgiveness given to us by Jesus Christ our Lord. But out in the world, we focus on neighbor and social justice, different things. We here know by the grace of God, by all that we have been forgiven and given through Jesus Christ, how we are to love one another as we have been loved. Out in the world, we need to speak then of the moral law. We need to speak of God's care, of the laws of God being something that help us create a society that bring true justice and equality out in that realm. But the two, again, are separate because of these two kingdoms. Here we speak of the revelation of Jesus Christ through his word, of what has been brought to all mankind because of God's love for the world. But again, out in the, in the political realm, it's human law and reason and moral law. We cannot speak of the revelation of Christ out in the political realm. Again, it's something foreign. It's something that isn't understood. It's what the scriptures say is foolishness to man. To understand that God loves... It, Again, this doesn't mean our witness to people. This just means speaking on issues in a political realm. Here we speak, as I said before, on the conviction of sin, that we know we are sinners, we are broken and in need of forgiveness. But out in the political realm, we need to speak on something else, the consequences of sin. Meaning that if the society adopts this or that way, that we know here goes against God's law. We can't say to them, you're sinning against God, what we can, because they're not, again, going to understand that. It doesn't compute when you're not in the kingdom of grace. But what we can say is that we know from experience, from history, from all that the Bible has taught us, that the pathway of following this way for societies will bring about consequences that are disastrous. And we have seen that in history. Proclamation of the gospel here in this realm. We proclaim Jesus Christ crucified. This is what we celebrate. This is what we live and move and have our being. But we cannot proclaim a gospel to people who, again, do not understand that, have not, by the Holy Spirit, been convicted of sin and righteousness or any of those things. But we can talk about 
human need out in the world. We know that there is human need. There is starvation and there is homelessness and there is need for people to be cared for and there is injustice and all those things that go on out there in the world. We don't necessarily bring the gospel, the proclamation of forgiveness of sins. We work in those realms. We influence those realms because we know we have been forgiven. Again, it's, it's a very delicate thing on how we speak. And we need to speak only when necessary. And I think in history we've seen so much the church speaking when it should be silent. We speak too often beyond Scripture. We dare not do that. We dare confine ourselves to what we know God has spoken to us. When we try to interpose what we think over and above what God has revealed to us in his word, that's where we begin to cause problems. Now, that doesn't mean that we are not to do something that is critically important. And I'll go to the next slide. And that is we are to have a faithful witness. We are to persuade. See, America was set up this way, pluralism. That many religions, that there could be many ways to worship and to exercise that freedom of religion. But one of the things that is pinnacle in this is not by force and not by government and not by rule of law that we can impose one against the other. But we are allowed in our great country to persuade meaning we bring the witness that we have been given in the kingdom of grace, the hope that is within us, our lives as Christian people, the things that make people wonder, why do you act this way versus what society does? Why do you believe this versus what we're being taught here? The things that ask, have people ask that question of the hope that is within us. You see, we are free in this great nation to persuade those around us, not in the political realm, but to persuade them through action and through deed, through lives lived in each of our Christian vocations of the greatness of what it means to be a citizen first and foremost of the true kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the kingdom that is not of this world. America is a Christian nation. America has been based on many principles of the Bible, but no nation on earth should ever claim to be the kingdom on earth of Christ. Because as Jesus said, his kingdom is not of this world. It is a kingdom ruled in the hearts and minds of men by his grace and by his word. And we cannot force, no should we ever try to force by law and by the things that we do in society, the ideas that we are convicted of because of faith and because of grace. We are allowed in different realms to come and to speak and to live lives as Christian citizens, to be different, to hold to those beliefs, to in fact, as we saw in the early church, to give up our lives for those beliefs, to sacrifice our lives. But we are never to, supposed to be people who by the rule of law try to enforce and change the society to follow the word of God because it's just not going to work. It's not worked in history. We've seen it over and over again. It's caused nothing but problems. And as Chuck Colson said, it makes us lose our voice for the most important thing that we have, the proclamation of Jesus Christ, of his gospel, of his freedom, of his love. You know, it's wonderful to be, as we have just celebrated in these last few days, 
the freedom that we have been given in this nation. It is a gift from God in his kingdom of power to have allowed a nation to be set up that believed in liberty. Remember, they believed in that liberty because to them that came as a God-given gift to them. Certain inalienable rights that God bestowed on his creation. And they wanted it to be something where freedom would reign and that the ideas of all ideas could be discussed and people would have that opportunity. They did believe that the truth of Christians living their lives as Christian people, influencing the society, would eventually win out in terms of the best way to live. But they didn't want a Christian nation. They wanted a nation that was free, that you and I could be free in, to live our lives, to persuade and to influence by the hope that has been placed in us. May we ever remember that our chief and most important proclamation is Jesus Christ, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his grace to us as people, and that grace extends beyond these walls into our community, into our nation, and into the world, so that first and foremost, hearts might be changed, that we might live first and foremost to Jesus Christ, lives worthy of the righteousness and the gifts that he has given to you and me and the hope within us. We're blessed and we should always give thanks for the nation that we live and always guard that freedom carefully. But we should remember first and foremost, our citizenship is in heaven, that that is our true homeland, that all these things that are set up in this world, governments and whatever will come to an end one day and are temporary. And all that will remain is the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever. Amen.